All right, friends, we're going to get back to Judges this evening, so please open up to the 16th chapter so we, be, so we can begin. The Samson cycle is continuing, and we have 18 verses to consider tonight. So it's still there. Yeah, it doesn't end. It's, 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 yeah, it's going to continue on. stop until it crashes. Yeah, all the way up through the New Covenant. So we have 18 verses tonight. This is the longest account in Samson's life that we have to consider. It makes sense for me at least to read it all at once. And then we'll just so we get like a big picture kind of view everything going on. And then we'll talk about it in three different sections for the most part. So let's read our text and pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. The reading of the word of the Lord beginning at verse 4 in chapter 16. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will give you one thousand one hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, they have not that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall be weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled away the pin and the loom and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come again, or excuse me, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees. She called a man, and she had him shave off his seven locks of his, off his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake free, shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, that was a lot to take in. We pray that you would help us to think rightly about your word and to learn from it what it is that you intend. We pray, Lord, that you would make us to understand and that you would give us an increasing interest for your word, that we might have an increasing interest in you, 
Lord, that know what is better than knowing you, we know that it is nothing. So please, Lord, uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in us to glorify yourself, that we might understand and grow in love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so one of the best things that you need to know about reading your Bible on a consistent basis is that you become more familiar with it. The more you read your Bible, the more time you spend with your Bible, listening to sermons, listening uh, to the Bible read like on a Bible reading app, or just reading the Bible on your own time, the, the more you begin to know it. You understand what it's teaching, and the Word is able to be like a light to your path at that point. And so you, by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit that is indwelling in you, you by reading the Bible more, you grow in having your worldview informed by the Bible. The more you know the Bible, and the more then that the Bible is applied through faith, the more consistent your view of the world will be. The more consistent your view of who God is will be. By the way, you could have a lot of information about the Bible in your head and be totally lost still, right? You can have a lot of Bible facts in your mind, but not be saved. If, if that knowledge, if the things the Bible teaches isn't applied to you through faith, I mean, you could be an expert on what the Bible says, but not actually be a Christian. And if that's the case, and the Bible is just information, like some history book or something, then your life won't be impacted by it, as it would be if you were a believer, if you were filled with the Spirit. So you understand that it's not enough to know your Bible as a system of information. That's possible, right? But the book comes alive for us when we read it with the gift of faith behind that reading. You're excited to read it at that point. You want to hear sermons because you want to hear God's word. You want to spend time reading your Bible on your own. You may even wonder sometimes why some people have like no appetite for the Bible, but they claim to be Christian. It doesn't make sense. But when you desire to read the word, to know the word, it becomes familiar to you. The more time you spend in it, the more familiar you are with it, the more you recognize the stories, the more you recognize what it is that God's intending to say. And that's especially good when it comes to like texts that are didactive. In other words, texts that are instructing you on what to do and what not to do. So like passages, for example, like in all the uh, epistles, like Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, those shorter letters, uh, Peter's letters, Romans, those are just filled with instruction, right? How to live the Christian life. And so when you're familiar with those, that's really good, obviously, because then you you know, you know how to live in any situation that you might find yourself in. And also even like the passages that instruct us on praise and who God is, because that helps us in how we worship. It informs how we pray and what we think. Yes, sir? Did you not read from Judges at all until we came back? Uh, no. Because it seems like we just read that and now we're at the next part. Yeah, yeah, we didn't do any Judges while you guys were gone. We didn't want to conclude, go on without yeah. the Neves being yeah. gone. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, like, yeah, we have to answer one of your questions, Henry. That's right. Um, what was your answer for the one where, uh, We'll get to it. Save it, save it, save it, save it, save it. So, because, anyway, so the point, like, you be familiar. The Bible, the more you're in it, the more familiar you can be, and familiarity is good. But familiarity can have a negative side as well. That is, if you're not prayerfully considering a passage because you know it so well, you can miss what the Lord is wanting to teach you in it. One of the reasons that God preserved the Old Testament for us is so that we can be instructed by it, that we've been learning that in 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings, right? Well, this is such a popular story. This is such a well-known story, Samson and Delilah. It's, it's so well-known that you can easily have familiarity be a handicap 
to you here. Like, don't approach this passion thing. Oh, I've heard this story a whole bunch of times. We've done this in Sunday school since I was a little kid growing up, and this is a story that I already know. We should never approach the word that we think that we're so familiar from it that we can't get something new from it, or that we've that we've figured out everything that it has to tell us. As a general encouragement, whenever you approach the word of God, you do so with reverence, with humility, and prayerfully asking the Lord to help you to pay attention and that you can understand it correctly. Because even though this is a familiar story to us, it's, it's right, it, it is right to know that this story is for us so that we wouldn't desire evil, which is what 1 Corinthians 10, 16 tells us. Like, why did God save this story here for us? It's not just so that we can have historical knowledge of, of Israel and what happened. It's not just so that we can know his plan of redemption. It is those things, of course, but it's also as what 1 Corinthians 10, 6 tells us that we wouldn't desire evil. And so don't just check out hearing the fantastical things that happen here and, and miss the points is what I'm trying to say. So let's take a look at this first section to give you an outline. Uh, you can break the section down like this, verse four to six, the trials introduced, verse seven to 17, the trial in motion. And then lastly, 18, 22, the trial concluded. So trial introduced, notice right away the continuing narrative we have going on here. It's verse four, Adam was right. We didn't uh, last time we ended on verse three. That was two weeks ago or three weeks ago. So verse four begins saying after this, and so there is some connection then to what we have going on here with the with what just previously happened, the close context. And then there's even some connection, I would argue as well, to all of Samson's narrative as a whole. So it's specifically verse one through three matter to what we're going to read or to what we already did read. And then also the preceding verses as well, too. And the most recent event of Samson's life before this was his trip to Gaza. And if you remember, we didn't get any details as to why Samson was going to Gaza. He never told us that, but we, we learned that when he got there, he, he lived a sexually immoral life, right? He did things that he wasn't supposed to do if he was wanting to glorify God and pursue holiness. He was guilty of sexual immorality. Scripture is clear that we're to flee from sexual immorality, but Samson, he just seems to like run right at it. He's, he, he does the opposite of what we're supposed to do. Strange behavior for a judge, of course. But again, as we've been saying, Samson is kind of like this. He's like this picture of what Israel is like. He's a parallel for the nation of Israel right now as he lives in rebellion to his calling. And in light of that, Samson ends up being useful to God, whereas Israel as a nation is living at peace with the Philistines. And they shouldn't be, right? Samson's tendency to sin to break the law of God, and on top of that, to violate his Nazarite vows, seems to end up having him at odds with the Philistines on a regular basis, which is ironic because, ironic because that's what Israel should be. Israel should be at odds with the Philistines. They shouldn't be embracing the Philistines and, and merging with their culture. The command from God at this point in their history, the covenant they were in, is to drive out the nations from Canaan. God has this way of accomplishing his will through means that are surprising, though. And so Samson ends up humiliating the Philistines even after his sinful engagement. And so now we're at the events of verse 4, and here we have an interesting detail upon a familiar theme. Samson has once again found himself with a woman that will play an integral part to the story. This is the third time that that's the case. First, there's his wife in Timnah. Then there was the prostitute at Gaza. And now there's a named woman. This is the first named woman that we've come across, a woman named Delilah. 
who is from the Valley of Sorek. Yeah. That's not why. Because we didn't even get his mom's name, right? Um, I don't know that that was necessarily like an intention that we should read a whole lot into, but I think I think that the reason we have Delilah's name will be answered for you in just a minute. So it's not – because remember, so we're looking at a span of in, – in Judges is like 350 years. And so there's only 20 chapters, 21 chapters. Um, is it 20 or 21? Let me look. Yeah, 21 chapters. So it's not telling everything that you could tell. These are the events that are recorded so that we might learn and and know what God wants us to know from them. So that's just, I guess, a minor detail. But I think it's interesting that we do know her name, and I'll make a I'll give a reason for that in just a moment. So we have an admission on Samson's part. Um, one thing, the Valley of Sorek is by Timnah, actually. So it's not in Gaza. So he has to go back up north. So he's in a more like Israelite area at this point. If he was, when he was down in Gaza, that was one of the main Philistine cities. And so there wasn't even a lot of Israelite presence there. But here at the Valley of Sorek, there is Israelite presence. It's up north more at Timnah was. But um, we'll mention more about Delilah's name in just a minute. Um, there is something else that's here. Another admission that we have that we haven't had before. Um, Samson's part says that he loved her. This is the first time that it's been started like that. You might remember that his life, his wife played the like, if you really love me card, um, you'll tell me the answer to the riddle. That was back in chapter 14, I believe. But this is the first time that we see the word telling us that Samson loved a woman. Now, we're kind of conditioned in our culture to think that, oh, Samson loves her. Well, then automatically think, oh, well, this is a good thing. He loves her. So this must be, this must be good because love is good. And so you, you hear this kind of thing all the time. He, uh, he or she did it for love. It was true love. Sometimes people even use this as an excuse for like homosexual relationships. You know, the idea, the idea that we love who we love and, and we can't control that. And just tell you that's foolishness, right? That's not, not what the word says is, is true or right of us in that, in that regard. Samson was not in the right to love this woman, actually. And, and really, I mean, you read the story and you're kind of left scratching your head, like wondering why he even loved her, right? I mean, she's horrible to him. She's absolutely horrible to him. Selling her out for money. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, uh, they they seem to have a loveless relationship. Maybe they love the thrill or just some physical thing. But people are not a just people are not allowed to use love as an excuse to disobey God. We went over this already when we talked about Samson's first wife. He was unequally yoked, remember, because she was a Philistine. It wasn't that he couldn't marry a Philistine, but a, a Philistine was who wasn't in a covenant with Yahweh was going to worship. Baal and Dagon and was going to live in rebellion to God. And so if, you know, she loved God, she could convert to Judaism and she called a proselyte. That happened um, in the Old Covenant uh, time span. But that's not what his first wife was doing at Timnah. That's not what um, Delilah is doing either. In the same situation, so he's unequally yoked with this woman who doesn't love the true God. And that's sin. But we don't even know that she's his wife. It's just that he's loved her. The implications are already intimate together. This isn't even his wife. But don't think that this is a good relationship just because he loves her. His loving her is, in fact, rebellion to God. Our love for someone or something, for that matter, could be rebellion to God. You understand that, I hope. And so our first point of application is love must always first be for and toward God. That's the case for all of creation. 
It, it's the law of God, in fact. In other words, it's not what saves you, right? Loving God isn't what saves you. Keeping the law of God doesn't save us. Jesus is keeping of it. And then his atonement applied to us through the faith that he gives us is what saves us. But all people, because we're created by God, actually owe God love. Remember Jesus' discussion with the young ruler and our young lawyer, I should say. They were talking about um, what is the greatest commandment. He, the lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers him in Matthew 22, 37 and 39. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, that was Jesus' response to what is the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And Samson's love for this woman, this is not a general love. We see that, right? This is a romantic love, not a general love for humanity that all people should have. But this is a love that would cause him to be in a sinful relationship. It's not a right love. And so that puts him outside of loving God then. Because if you love God, well, we'll get to here in a moment, but you obey God. We don't have time to get into everything we can say about love and like defining it, of course. But this action of Samson would be similar to like a married man saying that he loves another woman that's not his wife. He loves her the same way or maybe even more than his wife. Well, that's not love, right? That's that's wrong. It's utter confusion on what love is. To do so would be to fail to love God. Or it's the gay person who says that they love someone of the same gender, just like how a married couple loves each other. It's, it's sin then at that point, this love. And just because you have a feeling doesn't mean that you can fail to love God. And further, it's not actually a true love for someone else if you sin against God in doing so. Does that make sense? hope that makes sense. That if you are... Sinning against God in the name of love to someone else, that's not a true love that you have for whatever it is, person or thing. As long as that love of sour cream doesn't cause you to neglect your responsibilities to the Lord. I don't love sour cream, yeah, so that's true. I know. Yeah, right, well, I didn't want to get off of those tight tangents, but I mean... Not really, right? I, that's not really what love is. But I love Rocky Road. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. No. So, if you think you love something or someone, but that love causes you to sin against God, that's not a right or true love that you have. Right? Whatever it is. Whoever it is. Right? And that's what Samson's relationship with Delilah is causing him to do. Yeah, Jake. You have to know what the word says, right? So if because Samson should know God's law, being that he's an Israelite and he grew up with, you know, parents at least who seemed to respect the Lord, who like even went for the Nazarite vow with him and they knew what requirements were made. Well, they knew not to be equally yoked with the surrounding nations who didn't love God. And so since he's not, he's loving someone who's outside of what God's word said to love then he should know that that was an inordinate love, a love that he shouldn't have pursued. It was a feeling, it's a sinful feeling that seems good to us because love feels good. It seems like it's right, but we can't base our life off of feelings. We have to base our life off of what the objectifiable word of God says. And so like for us today, granted, we don't have the command from God to not be unequally yoked with different nations per se. Like you could totally, as a white guy, I could could have married a black woman, a, a Filipino woman, any 
ethnicity, that doesn't matter at all. But what would be wrong is that like if I was to pursue as a Christian, someone who wasn't Christian, that would be unequally yoked. Right? So it would lead to all kinds of troubles. Is that okay? Is that okay? So further uh, for the Christian, we love out of the love that God has loved us with. We love God out of the love that he's loved us with. We love God because he first loved us, First John 4.19. And so Samson is clearly indulging in his sin here because he should be more concerned about loving God than pursuing his own ends. Part of being a Christian is a joyful denial of ourselves because we love God, because God is first in our lives. We seek to put away behaviors that don't please God. We put off the old man and we renew our minds because of God's great love for us. It compels us to do so. But he's missing all of that in his pursuit of this woman. Our, our motivation in the Christian life is not, oh, I have to do this or God won't love me, even though that's true from one standpoint. But our motivation as a Christian is always, I want to do this because God loves me. That's our motivation. I want to do this. I want to obey because God loves me. I want to do this because of God's redeeming of me. He's a good father. He cares for me. He provides for me. So I want to be holy. I want to love what is right. And one more point of application, and that is that you must be aware of the fact that sin is deceitful. That, you know, sin can grow up into your life in such a way that makes you think, oh, well, this is love. Love is a good thing. But that love is, is actually sinful and it blinds you to the truth. Satan is the deceiver, Revelation 12.4. He's the father of lies, John 8.44. He's a professional at it. And the more we indulge any sin, the more hardened to the truth we become. And the more we are deceived and end up believing that, that lie that all is well, the more the easier it becomes to be deceived by that sin. And that's Satan's influence, really. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. In the letter to the Hebrews, the author is warning people in the New Covenant to not return to the Old Covenant. And throughout the example, in the chapters 3 and 4 especially, he uses examples in the Old Covenant to warn people that they shouldn't make the same mistakes. Same thing goes on in 1 Corinthians 10, by the way. But in chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 95, and we read him saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So what he's doing is he's calling them back to an account in the wilderness. But the point is that in the wilderness period, there was constant sinning and constant grumbling that eventually led to judgment upon them. Their sin increased and it increased, making it so that they neglected the kindness of God, making it so that sinning became easier. They gave themselves up to increasing wickedness. That's the point that Romans 1 also makes. My point being that we can't play around with sin. We can't indulge it. There is a long testimony of professing believers that have done that, and they fall away. As 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, take heed lest you fall. We'll say more on that towards the end. But look where, at where Samson's continued sinning has got him. It's not a good place. A couple more things to notice about the section, then we need to move on for the sake of time. Um, the woman's name is Delilah. So here you go, Jonathan. Why, is, why do we know her name? It's, it's random. We haven't had that opportunity yet. It's not that they haven't named women in this book before. We know a couple of women who, were, who delivered Israel, right? Deborah and um, what's the, lady, the other lady's name? Sisera, who drove the... the the stake through the man's head. Um, but this woman's name is Delilah, and it actually means to flirt. Uh, flirting can be okay, I suppose. Often, though, it's not. I don't think that we're given her name, though, because of what it means. 
Interesting, actually. So you're saying you don't flirt with your wife? As I said, flirting can be okay, but often it's not. Um, but yeah. So anyways, Samson, or her name sounds like the Hebrew word for night. If you were to, Delilah, the word for night is like Nilala. So it sounds very similar the way you say it. Uh, and so if you remember from verses 1 through 3, Samson did all of his exploits at night. The night was actually mentioned four times in verses 1 through 3. And he got himself into a lot of trouble in the night of the opening of those ver- opening verses. And now it's as if we're reading that he loves the night. He loves darkness. And as we know, because we already read it, we read it already, it's going to be his downfall. So that's potentially why we have her name. Because I think, I think maybe, you know, the Holy Spirit through Samuel, I think we think is the author of this, is wanting to make this point that Samuel, that Samson, he did all this evil in the night and now here he is. He, now he loves Delilah. Delilah sounds like the night. It's like he, he loves the night. He loves the darkness. He loves his sin is what it is. And it's interesting because we have these lords of the Philistines who approach Delilah, and they basically get her to play a game with Samson. It's a dangerous game, but the price is right, it seems. Back in Judges 3, we read that there's five Philistine lords, and so that would be 5,150 pieces of silver, or 5,100, excuse me, 5,500 pieces of silver that they would be giving to her, which is a huge amount of money. It's a lot of money back then. Essentially, she would be set for life. She would be like a, a a like a lord if a woman could be a lord in that culture. A whole lot better than the thirty pieces of silver that they used for Jesus. A whole lot better. So and so much for this being a loving relationship, right? I mean, because she's totally willing to be bought off. Maybe it's the amount of money that does it for her. Maybe it's like just some sort of a thrill of life or some combination of things. But she wants to play the game. So now we have the trial in motion. So Delilah seduces Samson, and apparently they think Samson is, excuse me, like some sort of magician or something. Like there's some sort of trick about him that is causing him to be so strong. They want to know where his strength lies, and Delilah is so obvious with her plot that you're left wondering, like, about Samson's intelligence. She tells him in verse 6, like, tell me where your strength lies so that you might be bound and so that someone could subdue you. He's a big, strong boy with no brain. I guess so, right? All, all brains are all brawn, no brains. That's how the old saying goes. I mean, nobody in their right mind would give up that information, right? This is his enemies, the Philistines. Well, Samson doesn't quite give up the info, not right away at least, but he entertains the crazy question from Delilah. Why would he do that in the first place? I mean, he knows the Philistines want to kill him, and he knows Delilah's a Philistine woman. Well, sometimes what you have happen with people, and this is certainly part of Samson's hardening of his heart, is that many past successes can make us confident. Many past successes can cause us to lose sight of reality. You know what it's like when I mean, you get away with something, that you did something wrong and you get away with it, and then you do something wrong again and you get away with it again, and then maybe another time and you get away with it again. So now in your mind, you're not on guard against it because you think it's just something that you can get away with. Pride, false confidence grows in us, and Proverbs 16:18 tells us that pride goes before destruction, which is what we see here. Samson, as one commentator puts it, he has used God's blessings as a reason to forget God. I mean, how could Samson get so foolish to fall for this trap four times? It's crazy. Sometimes success can be really hard on us. But we think that because we have success, then we must be doing something right. It must be worth it when in reality all you're doing is storing up wrath for yourself and your disobedience. 
of the Puritan, John Flavel, said this. He said, outward signs are ordinarily attended with inward losses. So you know what he means by that? Is that while you might be thinking this thing is going good, this worldly thing, maybe a thing that's neither good or bad, it's working out well, it's producing positive results, and a different thing maybe, then while we indulge this success inward spiritually, we're often, we sometimes are going in the wrong direction. That's what happened with Samson, right? He has all the success. He's having victory over the Philistines. They can't beat him. But inwardly, he's just drifting from the Lord. He's at this point now, he's loving darkness. It describes Samson. And then listen to what Flavel also says. Well, conversely, inward gains, in other words, spiritual gains, humility, faithfulness, trust, wisdom, self-control, those sorts of things, they are ordinarily attached to outward losses. In other words, don't let yourself think that success has got has, has the success you have in something means that you're right with God. God will often use trial a trial in your life to grow you spiritually. God often takes our weaknesses and our failures and then uses them to grow us. But success in the world can be a hindrance to your walk with the Lord. And if it causes you to take your eye off the Lord, not always, right? It's not I'm not saying all success in the world is bad, not at all. But if that success, whatever it is, causes you to be disobedient to the Lord, causes you to take your eyes off the Lord, then that's a failure, really, if you're thinking about it from God's point of view. Samson doesn't seem to be aware of that, and it's going to get him in a lot of trouble. And so he does what so many before him and after him do, and that is we take the gifts that God has given to us, the strengths that God has given to us, and then we end up using them against God himself because we don't use them for his glory. We use them for our, our own benefit. So Samson, uh, perhaps he's suspicious of her. Uh, obviously, he doesn't tell her the truth right away. Uh, he doesn't seem to care about his Nazarite vow here at the beginning. He says that you should tie him up with seven fresh bowstrings. They would make those from like intestines of like a an animal, a pig or something like that, these bowstrings. And so it kind of makes you think of like the fresh jawbone that he used, right? Still, it's like he's not as a Nazarite, he's not allowed to touch anything dead. So he'd be violating that right away. Anyway, Delilah follows the instructions, and this is just comical. When she's done tying him up, she acts all innocent. She's like, oh, the Philistines are coming. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. Like she didn't know or something. Like Samson is being deceived through all of this. I don't know. But it was the Philistine lords that brought the bowstrings up, so of course she knew they were there. And of course it doesn't work. And then she kind of gets upset with him, and the cycle starts over again. Why does Samson even play this game? His motives are hard to know, but he goes on with it. And so Samson makes up another story, this time. Fresh, unused ropes. And remember when his own people got him? They used ropes to tie him up. And then when he got in front of the Philistines, he just busted out of them and he killed, I forget how many at that point. Um, maybe it was 30. I, I, I'm blanking on it right now. But anyways, either the Philistines forgot about that. Or maybe they thought, well, those ropes must have not been new ropes or whatever. But they go through with it and he you know, breaks right through them. Samson is taking the gift that God gave him and he's using it for sin. It was what? It was a thousand at that point? Thank you. He's making a game out of it. And then the cycle starts again. This time he mentions an issue with his hair, which his hair did play a role in his Nazarite vow, but it's not like Samson has respected his vow up to this point at all. And so while Samson is apparently like asleep on the ground, she gets her loom, which is this contraption that you would use to like make a blanket or something like that, and you she weaves his hair to it, presumably while his head is on the ground and it's attached to it. But then uh, the same thing happens again. She calls out to the Philistines, and he just rips the trap apart. Verse 15 is very ironic. Look at verse 15. You, you see this, I think this is important to the whole narrative. You have Delilah say to Samson, mind you, this is after betraying him three times in a row. 
and you know offering up the Philistines for slavery or death. She probably doesn't know. But she says to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Similar to what his wife said back in chapter 14, right? Besides that, though, does she love him? Uh, not at all, right? This woman doesn't love him. But there's an interesting point that is being made. Remember how we've noticed that Samson is like a parallel to Israel? He basically represents Israel and how he reacts to the call of God in his life. And here, Delilah points out a truism that should have been convicting to Samson had his heart not already been so hard. It's true that if Samson loved her, then he would treat her in such a way that testified to that. And the same is true for Israel. If they loved God, then why is their heart not with him? Why do they not do what he has told them to do? Why do they keep adopting the lifestyle and the practices of the, and the worship of the surrounding nations? Samson's heart, had it not been so hard from continual sinning, he could have repented here. God, it seems to me like he was giving him a way of escape. He was giving him a way out from the temptation. This is the exact issue with Israel. Remember, we haven't heard since Gideon's time, which is back in chapter 9, that the land had rest. In order for them to have rest, then according to the covenant they were in, they would have had to have been obedient to God. But since there is no obedience, there has been no rest. And God is here telling Samson what the issue is through Delilah. But he's not wise enough to see it. He's not in tune enough with his sin to see it. That a lack of obedience to God is actually evidence that you don't love God. A lack of obedience to God is actually evidence that you don't love the Lord. I mean, you could tell yourself that you love God, but if you're not seeking to obey God, then it could be that you're lying to yourself. That's Samson's problem here. That's Israel's problem as a whole. Remember what Jesus said uh, about relationship, the relationship between loving God and obedience? It's John 14, 15. He says very plainly, if you love me, keep my commandments. Of course, it's, it can't be done perfectly. That's not what Jesus is saying, that if you love me, you'll never sin. He's not saying that. That if you love me, keep my commandments. He grants us repentance and grace to turn away from the sin that's in our life. That's Repenting from our sin is part of keeping his commandments. But notice, it's not keep my commandments so I will love you. It's not that. We don't earn God's favor by being obedient. But our obedience to God comes out of the love that God has shed abroad in our hearts. It's the natural outworking of it. The Christian is obedient not to earn favor from God, but because Christ has earned our favor for us and we delight to please him because we delight in him. Now, Delilah came at Samson this way for a number of days, we read, perhaps even using the same line of reasoning over and over again. If you love me, then why is your heart not for me? But there's no seeing this for Samson. And we read that he confessed to her that he's been a Nazarite to God. He actually mentions Elohim, which is the impersonal name for God. And then he tells her that if his head is shaved, then he'll be weak like any other man. And this is a bit strange because Samson's like, he's already made light of his Nazarite vow. It doesn't seem to care about it at all. Uh, he's touching dead things. He's sleeping with prostitutes. He's guilty of sexual immorality on a number of counts. Why does this one thing matter, but the other things don't? Well, we don't actually know, uh, to be certain. It wasn't that not cutting his hair was actually what made him strong. Hmm? I don't think that he knew, actually. And well, I, I'm, I'm certain he didn't know. You'll see in one, in one minute. You like for example, let's say we can't grow our hair out and then become super strong like Samson. That's not like some magic trick or something like that. Samson tried. <laughs> it's kind of worked. I can't try anymore. Yeah, that's right. Um, what did do it for Samson was the spirit of God upon him. That's what gave him strength. But for whatever reason, it's at this point that God stops blessing Samson. Samson's abuse of God's kindness has run out. 
So perhaps it's because Samson's missed the plain parallel on how he was treating Delilah and how that imports on how Israel was treating God. Don't know for sure. But Delilah believes him this time. She calls the Philistine lords. They bring cash. They bring a barber. And while Samson is on her lap, she has the, the guy come over to cut his hair. And again, it's, he's a picture of Israel. I mean, how stupid has he been? How stupid has Israel been? They have the true God on their side. He has chosen them. He has blessed them. And yet they live like worshiping these false gods is better. They choose false gods over the true God. It's stupid. And then the familiar, oh no, the Philistines are here. He's on her lap and she's tormenting him at this point. Not really sure what that means. Is she like messing with him? Is his strength already gone? Not sure. But he wakes up and he thinks he still has his strength. And the, he probably really didn't think he probably didn't think he was going to lose his strength from this. I mean, after all, he's violated the vow a bunch and hasn't changed things. Because look at verse twenty. He says the Philistines are probably and he, said, he woke from his sleep and said, "I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free." See, he didn't really think that cutting his hair was actually going to make him weak. But then comes the saddest line in our account. It's the end of verse twenty. But he did not know the Lord left him. Earlier, Samson used Elohim to speak about God. He said he was a Nazarite vow with God, Elohim. Here, it's Yahweh. You notice in your Bible, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's Yahweh has left him. The true reason his strength is gone. Not because his hair was cut, although God does use the sign of the Nazarite vow again to signify his choice. But God has left him. Yahweh has left him. That is the warning that scripture makes clear over and over and over, that if we indulge in sin, even if we profess faith in the Lord, if we try and justify our sin and say something like, oh, God won't care about this or that, we can fall just like how Samson fell. The glory of the Lord has left Samson. He is Ichabod. If you remember from uh, Israel's time period of being engrossed in sin shortly after this, with uh, the prophet Samuel and the sons of Eli. Well, Eli has a son named Phineas, and they get pregnant. And at the time the baby is born, the ark is stolen, and she names her son Ichabod because the, the glory of the Lord has left. And that's what's happened with Samson here. Ichabod is a reminder that we need to take our relationship with God seriously. Unholy living shouldn't lead to an assurance of salvation. It was doing that for Samson. He thought he could just do whatever he wanted and it wouldn't matter. But he was wrong. And the Lord departed from him. Persistent neglect of the Lord's commands, no matter what excuse you tell yourself, shouldn't give you confidence that God is fine with it. The warning that Christ gives to one of his churches in Revelation is pertinent. It's Revelation 3.17. He says, he says this about the church. He says, for you, this church, this group of people, say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And, and remember, these events in the Old Testament, they're not just historical stories. Many Christians think the Old Testament is irrelevant to their lives. However, the New Testament teaches us that the events in the Old Testament are examples for us that we might avoid evil. It's 1 Corinthians 10.6. And then 1 Corinthians 10.12 tells us that when we see these stories, our response as, as Christians in the New Covenant should be to take heed lest we fall. You see, the Lord has kept these accounts for us to have and read, not only so we can know his plan of redemption that brings him glory, but also for that those who he did redeem will see stories like this and turn from our sin. Every one of us in here, Christian, that's professing a Christian, we all admit we have sin, right? Mm -hmm. We all also then should admit that we need to turn from that sin. We need to repent from it. 
Well, stories like this are a reminder that encourages us to do that very thing. This is what God used to persevere us. It's not that we can lose our salvation once we are saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we should think of happening to Samson here as well. Samson, remember, this is complex because Samson exists within the Old Covenant. It's a complex covenantal system. And the Spirit was upon him for a specific task. And that Spirit is removed from him for that task. He loses his strength, right? But it serves as a type for us. It serves as a warning for us to be humbled and to take our devotion to the Lord seriously because you do have people fall away from the Lord after they've supposedly been living him for him for some time. And so it looks to us, at least, it looks like they have the spirit, even though if they fall away and they never repent for their sin, it would mean that they never actually had the spirit. But that's just the way that it appears. But people who really love the Lord, people who have the spirit because they are saved, They'll respond with repentance when it's needed. They'll heed the warnings of Scripture. That's how God perseveres us. That's how he preserves us in the faith. We can't lose salvation once we have it. Of course not. But a person who is really saved listens to the warnings in the Bible and then by grace makes corrections and repents. The person who is never saved, really, they don't listen to the warnings and eventually they fall away. And you see what happens, right? We continue on here. Again, I don't think Samson was losing his salvation. It was a, it's a type to show us that people fall away from the Lord when they indulge their sin. But you see what happens, the result of his sin. You see what happens when Yahweh departs, ruin comes. And it's the kindness of God, uh, abu- or excuse me, abusing the kindness of God will never pay off in the end, no matter how long it takes. And so the Philistines gouge his eyes out. That's on purpose, of course, because Israel has continued to do what is right in their eyes. And they bring him to Gaza. That's the place where he tore the gates out. And they treat him like a beast of burden. But even at this junction, at this section, there's a reminder that God is faithful and he has mercy on his loved ones. Verse 22 is a cliffhanger. And it says, but the hair of his head, he began to grow again after he had been shaved. In other words, God's not done with this story yet. Because out of defeat... God is going to have victory. He did it with Christ on the cross. Even though this world right now may look like it's just chaotic and Christians are not winning, if you look at like the policies and things that happen in our government, if you see how Christians are being um, arrested in Canada and churches are not allowed to meet, it might look like to the person looking at it like Christianity is not doing well. But God has, brings victory out of situations just like this. Uh, even though we may look at this world and see so many people choosing the world over Christ, God's church remains victorious and is continuing to grow. And so we're left with this little cliffhanger here at this point because there was still grace left for Samson. There is still breath in his lungs. And so we'll see what happens next time. But the encouragement is, is here for us too. Perhaps we've been taking the kindness of God for granted lately. Well, today is the time for repentance. A, a, a Christian is fully capable of taking the kindness of God for granted. That's what we should see in this. And when a story like this that we see, what happened, Samson, that should compel us to repent. Now is the time to seek forgiveness. We still have breath in our lungs, and God is faithful and kind and just. If we, as Christians, are indulging our sin, God gives us grace so that we may turn to him. And if you're not a Christian, but you feel repentance and regret for your sin and abuse of God's kindness, today is the day of salvation, the word of the Lord says. We can't save ourselves. It's Christ who lived and died in the place of sinners. That's the hope of the Christian. It's in that one that Yahweh, the the person who trusts in Christ, 
is the person that can have true hope that Yahweh will never depart from him because God can never deny himself. And if you belong to Christ, then you belong to God because Christ is God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this example of Samson. And it is amazing uh, to see the things that you did through him, even though he was not intending to bring you glory through them. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to take our relationship with you serious, that these accounts in the Old Testament, that we wouldn't view them just as stories, but that they, they would be models for us to help us to turn from evil. We know that we still have sin in our lives, Lord, and we pray that you would root it out and grant us repentance over those things, that you would remind us and encourage us with your gospel, your holy gospel that is the only hope for us, Lord. We have no hope or no confidence in ourselves to save ourselves, but our, let our confidence be fully in you that we might have true rest. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.